Alana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. July 9, 2018 marked the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. In anticipation of this momentous anniversary, this past April, the National Constitution Center partnered with the Thurgood Marshall Institute at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund for a day-long symposium about the 14th Amendment. In this episode, we feature a panel discussion from this symposium with some of America's leading Civil War and Reconstruction scholars, Dr. Alan Gelzo of Gettysburg College, Martha Jones of Johns Hopkins University, Daryl Miller of Duke Law School, and Kurt Lash of the Richmond School of Law. They tell the story of the 14th Amendment by focusing on the amendment's intellectual origins, drafting, ratification, and original understanding. The host is Jeffrey Rosen. Sherilyn Eiffel, the 7th President and Director Counsel of the NAACP LDF and Trustee of the National Constitution Center, provides introductory remarks. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be here. Uh, I love the National Constitution Center, as Jeff knows, and I hope that you'll have an opportunity to spend time in the building today. I really do think it is a national treasure. Uh, this conference was really important to me, and I'm so thrilled that uh, Jeff so readily agreed to have the Legal Defense Fund and the National Constitution Center co-sponsor this conference. I'm privileged and honored to lead uh, an organization that is the oldest civil rights legal organization in the country, founded by Thurgood Marshall in 1940, and to be the seventh leader of that extraordinary organization. It was my dream as a young girl to be a civil rights lawyer, and that dream came true, but it, I could never have believed that I would be in this extraordinary position leading this organization that has been so important to American democracy. I wanted to, to participate in this gathering today and to make sure that we commemorated the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment because in some ways, I, it astonishes me how little the 14th Amendment is talked about in public life. When people think about themselves as Americans, they very readily talk about their First Amendment rights. You can't tell me not to do that. I, ha I have the rights of the First Amendment that cover me. People very readily talk about their Second Amendment rights. And yet, I think the, the amendment to the Constitution that fundamentally shapes the modern vision of Americanness, the modern vision of citizenship, the principles of equality that we use to describe this country and justice, they are enshrined in the 14th Amendment, the amendment that set right, that hit the reset button on American democracy. Now, even though we're commemorating the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, I want to be clear that this amendment is not static. It has taken not only the litigation, but the struggle, the blood, the sweat, and the tears of millions of Americans to make those words even approach their, their true meaning. If you are a civil rights lawyer, the 14th Amendment is the center of all that you do. And you recognize that it's the sacrifice of ordinary people who are willing to fight to make those words mean what they should mean that has given it the rich uh, meaning that it holds today. And you also know that that struggle is not over. Um, we have lawyers here from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and if you're here, could you just um, wave your hand? Um, and this is just a fraction of our, of our staff, but we are never out of work. 
And the principal tool that we use is the 14th Amendment. And so that shows you that the struggle is not over. Whether we're talking about voting rights or education or economic opportunity uh, or criminal justice, the 14th Amendment remains central to the struggle for full equality and citizenship for African Americans and others in this country. Before I take my seat, I just want to remind you about the fact that um, you're going to hear a lot today from some of the most extraordinary and brilliant scholars, 14th Amendment scholars in the country. But I don't want us to forget the role of average, ordinary people. Just a few weeks ago, I had occasion to speak at the memorial service for Linda Brown. Linda Brown was the little girl in the family uh, that took the courageous step of being willing to be the lead plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education. And Brown versus Board of Education decided in 1954 did as much to reset and reimagine the meaning of the 14th Amendment and fulfill the promise of the 14th Amendment as any case that has ever appeared before the Supreme Court. And so today, when we talk about cases and when we talk about interpretations and when we talk about Supreme Court justices, I also want us to remember a little girl and her family and the other families in the other cases that made up Brown versus Board of Education who made the sacrifice of exposing themselves in their community, sometimes to violent reprisals, in order to fight for the reality of the words of the 14th Amendment for you and for me, not just for themselves. These are extraordinary American patriots and they made tremendous sacrifices for all of us. So today, let's certainly talk with these extraordinary scholars, but let's not forget that the ability to give our Constitution real meaning comes through the courage of average, ordinary people like Linda Brown, Oliver Brown, and the plaintiffs in that extraordinary case. Thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to listening to this first panel. Thank you, Jeffrey. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Sherilyn, for your vision and uh, uh, enthusiasm in convening us. Ladies and gentlemen, our first panel is about the history and original meaning of the 14th Amendment. The second panel is about its public meaning and social significance, and the third panel is about its contemporary relevance to our lives. You're about to hear from the greatest historians in America about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. I'm going to introduce them, and we're going to begin our discussion. Alan Gelzo is the Henry Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. His most recent book, released earlier this month, is Reconstruction, A Concise History. Martha Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. She is author of All Bound Up Together, The Woman Question in African American Public Culture, and most recently, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. And her work, I was so uh, honored to learn, began here at the Constitution Center when she was a fellow about a decade ago. Kurt Lash is the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Chair in Law and the founder and director of the Richmond Program on American Constitution at the University of Richmond School of Law. His books include the 14th Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities of American Citizenship. And Kurt is engaged in an incredible project to digitize all of the Reconstruction era congressional debates. And the Constitution Center is so excited to work with him to bring those crucial debates to all Americans. And Daryl A. H. Miller 
Miller is Melvin G. Shim, professor of law at Duke University School of Law. He is published in leading law reviews and has been cited by the Supreme Court of the United States. Please join me in welcoming Alan, Martha, Kurt, and Daryl. <laughs> Wonderful. This is great. If I can ask you each to shift over one so I can sit here and see you all, I am going to begin this very important panel by reading the text of the 14th Amendment. And there are lots of places where you can get it, but one of the best is the Constitution Center's <laughs> Interactive Constitution, which has the leading scholars in America writing about what they agree and disagree about every clause of the Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited. We've been waiting for Akhil Amar and John Harrison to turn in their homework for the final, uh, for the Citizenship Clause and the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but Akhil just sent in his explainer this morning in honor of the 150th anniversary of the 14th. It'll be online so uh, later this week week, I hope, but, um, and you can check it out then. So I'm going to read the uh, section one, and then we're just going to discuss its clauses and their history and original understanding. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. That's called the citizenship clause. No state shall make or enforce any law what shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, that's the privileges or immunities clause, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, that's the due process clause, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's the equal protection clause. Now, entire law school seminars and courses are taught over each of these clauses and each word, and there's so much to learn and unpack, but we want as intensely and meaningfully as possible to understand what the framers were trying to achieve with these uh, clauses. And Alan, I'm going to begin with you, and I'm going to ask you about the citizenship clause, and if, if you, I think I'm going to leave it up to you. If you want to give a global uh, brief description of what the entire section one was trying to achieve, or uh, if you want to start with citizenship, uh, that would be it. Well, citizenship is an unusual subject because the Constitution actually does not, in its original form, give us a definition of what citizenship is. There are five references to citizenship in the Constitution, and some of them refer to citizens of the states, some of them refer to citizens of the United States, but the two categories are not distinguished. They're not even defined. And for that reason, there's a, a cloying lack of clarity about this in the early decades of the history of the Republic. It comes to a point, though, with the Dred Scott decision of 1857, because in that decision, Chief Justice Tawney takes the bolt between the teeth and decides that he is going to define citizenship. Or at least what he's going to do is define who can't be a citizen. And clearly and unambiguously for him, uh, you cannot be a citizen if you are a black human being. Not just a slave, not just a free. No, if you are a member of that race, if you are that color, you cannot under any circumstances be a citizen. What he's doing is defining citizenship according to a standard that we call jus sanguinis. In other words, the law of blood. You have to be of a certain descent to enjoy citizenship. What happens with the Civil War is a complete overturning of that. 
and to codify that overturning and to put a new definition of citizenship in place, what the 14th Amendment does, and especially in the hands of John Bingham, one of the architects, principal architect of the 14th Amendment, is to redefine citizenship. It's to rebuke, it's to reply to Chief Justice Tawney in Dred Scott and to say, no, the basis of citizenship in the United States is you are born here. It is jus solus, the law of the place where you are born. So if you are born in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States. That is a, a, a remarkable departure because for the first time we are getting a definition of what citizenship is supposed to be and there it is in the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment then acts to correct, first of all, the oversight of the original drafts of the Constitution in not defining citizenship, but more directly it speaks to a correction of Roger Tawney in Dred Scott. And it lays out for us now what citizenship in the United States is supposed to be, makes it clear that this is the paramount loyalty which Americans have. You may be a Virginian, you may be a Minnesotan, you may be from New Jersey, you may be from Florida, but your primary identity is that of a United States citizen. And from that point through section one, we also learn what being a citizen of the United States entails. But that's enough for me for the moment. That in enough, if, that, if, if the 14th Amendment only did that one thing about citizenship, it would have completely moved the earth in terms of legal standing and in terms of what the Civil War had accomplished. What a beautiful and concise uh, description of the purpose of the Citizenship Clause. You've told us that it was meant to repudiate the idea of citizenship based on blood and to embrace an idea of birthright citizenship and to overturn the Dred Scott decision, which embraced the blood rather than the birthright vision. Martha, in your new book about birthright citizenship, you explore precisely this question. What were the consequences of Tawney's crab definition of citizenship based on blood for African-Americans before the Civil War? And how did the 14th Amendment correct th that notion by embracing the idea of birthright citizenship? I think in order to um, fully understand the import and the consequence of the citizenship provision of the 14th Amendment, we have to go back in part to where Sherilyn Eiffel um, brought us in her opening remarks, which is to ordinary people. Um, so here, um, former slaves um, who have been a part of the nation to an important degree since the American Revolution have faced a question that is now an enormous one. Who are they? in relationship to the nation? Who are they in relationship to the Constitution? And when we look back to their activism, to their debates, what we learn is that since the 1820s, former slaves had been contemplating, debating, crafting an argument, an argument about their status as birthright citizens. They draw on that tiny language in the Constitution you all will remember this, right? The president must be a natural born citizen of the United States. And they seize on this and they say, there is such a thing as a natural born citizen. And we are, right? The constitution is silent about race. Um, and we are natural born citizens. Why is this important for black Americans? Well, there's an important story that I'm sure we'll get to today about civil rights and political rights. but. 
what former slaves face before the Civil War is something else. And it is a threat of removal, of banishment, of exclusion from the United States. Um, this comes in the form of what we call black laws that regulate in a quotidian way their lives. It comes in the form of colonization schemes where private organizations command resources intended to encourage, sometimes quite forcefully, African Americans to relocate to Liberia or to Canada or to the Caribbean. And so former slaves watch the example of Indian removal, and they are concerned that they are going to be subject to the same sort of fate. And they hope, they believe, they argue that birthright citizenship and that status is what will protect them. So we have, by the time we get to the moment of the 14th Amendment, a sort of culmination of really decades of activism, of argument, of contestation driven by the claims of black Americans um, that now their view of their status as birthright citizens is constitutionalized in 1868. And so it's a tremendous moment. You so powerfully describe, as you argue in your book, how the fear of deportation was so acute and how the current debates about uh, deportation relate to these Civil War era ones where citizenship guarantees you the right not to be sent from uh, uh, America and to be guaranteed the basic rights of citizenship. Kurt, you can uh, say more about the citizenship clause if you like, but you are also America's leading scholar of the uh, privileges or immunities clause along with many of your colleagues here. And the privileges or immunities clause says no state shall deprive any uh, citizen of the privileges or immunities of, the, of citizenship. So begin to tell us what are those privileges or immunities of citizenship. Indeed, and the privileges or immunities clause is one of the most debated portions of, of, uh, of section one. And I do want to talk about it, but before we get there, I had just a quick comment on the citizenship yeah. um, clause. It, Jeff began by reading uh, portions of, of section one, and all he's given you um, is just that, just that opening section. If he had read the entire 14th Amendment to you, he'd still be going right now, and we wouldn't be having this, uh, this conversation. It's an extraordinarily long and complicated set of five provisions, and we're just starting on the opening sentence on citizenship. And putting this five-section um, amendment together was extraordinarily difficult. It was an amazing battle that occurred in the opening months of, 18, of 1866. And the Citizenship Clause, in fact, was the very last addition, a last-minute addition, um, to Section 1. And it started not as a proposed constitutional amendment. The Citizenship Clause began as a statute. It's the opening language of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. What happened is when the 39th Congress met um, soon after the ratification of the, of the 13th Amendment, um, the, the members of the 39th Congress had something of a political emergency um, facing them that I know that um, Alan and others are gonna, want, are gonna want to talk about. But to solve the emergency and the protection of rights in the South following the end of the Civil War was gonna take some type of legislative action and they were actually divided over whether or not to do it by way of statute or do it by way of an amendment. The Senate began with proposing statutes, an extension of the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and the Civil Rights Act, what became the Civil Rights Act of 1866. In the House, they discussed amendments. 
and men like uh, John Bingham uh, got to work on protecting various um, individual rights and due process rights and equal protection rights. Everyone in both the House and the Senate was proposing multiple statutes, multiple amendments. There was chaos um, all the way until I think around April of, of 1866. They could not find agreement um, on how to approach Reconstruction or how to put together the proper language of Reconstruction. And it wasn't until about April that they finally decided to bring all the ideas together into this five-sectioned amendment. And the opening section was going to be written by John Bingham, who had started with ideas of privileges or immunities um, and due process and equal protection. But Representative Bingham did not have a citizenship clause in his proposal. He, moved for, he had certain concerns about protecting the Bill of Rights, so there's my answer to the privileges or immunities question. He very much wanted the Bill of Rights applied against the states for the first time. It had not been true since the time of the founding. Um, but he was not part of the efforts that had crafted um, or supported the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So at the last minute, due to concerns that, they, uh, that courts might decide Congress didn't have power, to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1866, including the Citizenship Clause, um, a suggestion was made to add an additional sentence to Bingham's amendment just to make sure um, that this would not uh, be overturned either by a new Congress or by the courts of law. So this very first sentence was the last, was the last edition. Fascinating. Um, Daryl, uh, Kurt just uh, alluded to the emergency that gave rise to the amendment. Uh, including the black codes that denied African-Americans the right to make or enforce contracts, to sue and be sued, to inherit property, and to take advantage of the basic civil rights of white people. And as he mentioned, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 guaranteed to all uh, citizens, black as well as white, uh, the rights of basic civil rights. Tell us about the black codes and the Civil Rights Acts of 1866, what was going on on the ground, and how did the 14th Amendment intend to ensure that the rights of the Civil Rights Act were constitutionalized? So the, um, the situation on the ground uh, right after the Civil War was pretty dire. There were reports uh, by individuals like Carl Schurz um, who went down to investigate uh, what was going on in the post, immediate post-war period. Um, how things were going, and uh, what he reported back was pretty grim, uh, especially for the uh, newly uh, emancipated uh, freedmen. Um, they were basically caught in a whipsaw between private discrimination and public discrimination. So what would happen would be uh, that there would be laws, for example, that would say uh, that uh, one was a vagrant and could be picked up uh, and charged with a crime of vagrancy if one did not have a job or own property. Uh, and yet, uh, the situation was that uh, the, the whites who actually owned property uh, or who could hire uh, African Americans would not do so except on the terms that were created by either the black codes or the old slave system itself. For example, somebody might try to go off uh, their plantation to work at another farm and somebody would say to the effect of, uh, who do you belong to? You can't work for me unless they say it's okay. Uh, then freedmen with no job uh, and no property would be picked up by the uh, local uh, officials uh, and charged with a crime. And then uh, the 13th Amendment has an interesting loophole which essentially says that uh, involuntary servitude is outlawed 
uh, slavery and voluntary servitude are both outlawed except as punishment for crime. So having been picked up for having no job and having no property uh, and duly convicted, uh, then the freedmen would be sold at a sheriff's sale uh, as convict labor uh, and a kind of vicious circle uh, would emerge. And so in part what the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866 was designed to do was to break uh, this sort of unholy alliance between private discrimination and public discrimination uh, and used uh, the metric of the privileges, the powers, the rights that white citizens had as the metric for all citizens and in fact said very expressly that um, uh, that uh, uh, freedmen uh, should have the same rights as are enjoyed by white citizens to own property to be able to contract uh, the idea to break up what was essentially a kind of cartel behavior on the part of uh, private uh, power brokers in the south um, and then um, uh, on sort of parallel tracks there was anxiety about um, what the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866 did, uh, both in terms of its substance and uh, in its terms of uh, describing citizenship, uh, and this gave rise to the need uh, uh, among uh, some uh, members of uh, the Congress to work on an amendment that would make sure that this was not just a statutory guarantee, but could be uh, insulated from um, as Curtin said, um, overturning by a court or uh, repeal by a subsequent Congress. Great. Uh, not great, but well described. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of great. <laughs> and now for a brief break. In anticipation of the National Constitution Center opening a new permanent gallery on the Civil War and Reconstruction in spring 2019, and in celebration of the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, we the People is thrilled to announce a special summer podcast series. Starting in August, this series will feature the stories of some of the era's most influential constitutional figures, from Frederick Douglass to Callie House to John Bingham. Be sure to tune in August 2nd as we kick off this historical series. Great uh, that the Privileges or Immunities Clause attempted to apply the Bill of Rights against the states, as Kurt said, before the 14th Amendment was passed, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say the states shall make no law, and therefore the states were free in the antebellum period to deny free African Americans the right to denounce slavery, to send their pamphlets through the mails, and to enjoy basic privileges or immunities. So as Kurt has argued so powerfully, one goal of John Bingham, the James Madison of Reconstruction, was to prevent the states, as well as the federal government, from abridging the basic liberties of the Bill of Rights. Alan, there's a big controversy from much of the 20th century about what else the Privileges or Immunities Clause covers. Some say that it's just uh, an equality provision and says that whatever rights the states extend to white citizens have to also be extended to blacks. Others say that it includes certain substantive rights, not only the Bill of Rights, but also those rights in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, like the rights of contract and property and so forth. What do you think that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was intended to protect? Well, at least as far as John Bingham has told us, we get some very contradictory readings. Bingham wanted to model the reference to privileges or immunities to the Privileges and Immunities Clause that appears in, in Article 4 of the Constitution. That in itself had been a source of legal controversy. 
because the assumption had been that all that privileges and immunities was being described in the comedy clause in Article 4 was, was simply just saying, well, if a certain person moves from a state to another state, the state to which they have moved cannot arbitrarily prevent them from enjoying the same privileges uh, that someone in that uh, state to which they've moved enjoys. In other words, if I move from Pennsylvania to New Jersey, uh, the governor of New Jersey cannot say, I really don't like people from Pennsylvania. So therefore, I am going to tax you at a higher rate than New Jersey citizens, or I'm going to prevent you from practicing certain professions in New Jersey because you're just a Pennsylvanian. And uh, you know, there are certain shops at the Jersey Shore which have made me feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the understanding was that the Comedy Clause was there to prevent that from happening. So that if you practice law in Pennsylvania, you can go to New Jersey and you can practice law there. Uh, if you have a profession that you practice at home, you can move to another state and practice it there. The, the states cannot deprive you of that. They cannot create artificial burdens to prevent you from doing that because that would be to interrupt the comedy. And comedy, of course, had been a major question in the creation of the Constitution itself. I mean, in a sense, the Constitution, if you go back to the Annapolis Convention, really begins with discussions about comedy. About how do the states deal with each other? Do they tax each other? Do they impose tariffs on each other? So in one sense, what Bingham aimed to do was, at first at least, only to act as enforcing this notion of comedy. But as soon as he gets into it, that begin the ground begins to shift. And he begins to want to talk about the enforcement of the Bill of Rights. In this case, by and large, the, the first eight amendments to the Constitution, so that he talks about something different from what the Comedy Clause talks about when he says in the 14th Amendment, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Right, suddenly we're dealing with a different category. Now what is that category? Well, Bingham believed that that category was the first eight amendments. Sometimes he will talk about it in even more diminished terms as simply life, liberty, ownership of property. Over time, we have expanded that. We have included a number of substantive rights. We're still debating that. But at least as far as Bingham's original view of things, it tends to oscillate between, is he just talking about enforcing comedy? Well, that is part of it. Or is he adding to that by saying, citizens of the United States, well, that means first eight amendments to the Constitution, to the Bill of Rights, that states cannot abridge those. Certainly in Bingham's view, it doesn't go beyond that, but there will be later decisions and later controversies and a history which will generate a very different kind of jurisprudence. That's very helpful to sketch out the difference between the equality vision uh, of the Comedy Clause and the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Can I, can I say one thing? Sure. You know, this sounds like we got into the weeds really quickly with this. And, and that, it can sound like, why didn't they just make this simple? Yeah. And there's a fundamental reason for that. And that is, there is no such thing as a reference book called Reconstruction for Dummies. <laughs> you know, they, they did not get to the Civil War. General Lee didn't walk off the porch uh, at Appomattox. And everyone said, okay, now we know what to do. Let's put in, implement phase one of Reconstruction. At that point, it was like, 
What's a phase one of reconstruction? There was no model for how to do reconstruction. So there's a very large sense in which reconstruction really looks like improv, that no one knew what to do next. And it's something like the little Dutch boy plugging the holes in the dike. Let's put a finger in that hole. Whoops, there's another hole. Ooh, let's put another finger. And they're trying to deal with situations as they arise. When Kurt was talking about all the things that are really packed into this 14th Amendment, I mean, not just privileges and immunities, but uh, talking about the Confederate war debt, about who is entitled to occupy certain offices, representation. What the 14th Amendment is really doing is offering you a map of the controversies that had exploded in the year since the end of the Civil War and which people were trying to find a way to cope with. And, in, and the truth of the matter is that even after they're finished with the 14th Amendment, plugging up at least four, five, maybe six or seven or eight of those important questions, suddenly they have to turn around and realize, ooh, ooh, we forgot to deal with a few other things. Hence, the 15th Amendment that will, that will come further on down the pike. So bear in mind, if a lot of this sounds like people aren't getting their ducks lined up, it's because there was no line. In fact, they didn't even know they were dealing with ducks. You know, Reconstruction is terra incognita, and they are trying to work through these problems. Congress, in this, in this case particularly, are trying to work through these problems as they're being brought to their attention. And they just don't have templates. They don't have books of instructions easily at hand uh, to guide them in what they should do next. Well, one of the consequences of uh, creating holes that had to be plugged was that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was eviscerated by the Supreme Court. And as every law student knows, in the infamous slaughterhouse cases, the Supreme Court held that privileges or immunities were a narrow category of rights already protected by the existing Constitution, like the right of, uh, to file suits in admiralty on the high seas and so forth, basically reducing the clause to a nullity. Martha, what were the consequences of the evisceration of the 14th Amendment in the slaughterhouse cases? And how did the other clauses of the 14th Amendment come to take up the slack? Great question, because um, the first thing that comes to mind right, is um, the slaughterhouse cases as really representing um, the moment of deep disappointment, right? deep disappointment in the promise of the 14th Amendment, the possibility um, that the Constitution, that the federal courts, that the federal government um, will serve as a guarantor right, in an important sense of not only um, the rights of former slaves, um, but um, the ongoing right, process of what is answering the what is freedom, right? How is freedom embodied, um, not only in, const in a constitutional sense, in a lived sense every day. So um, we can sort of characterize this moment as a moment, a turning point, as a point of disappointment. I would say one of the things that happens for African Americans right, is to um, return, um, interestingly, um, to struggles on a state and a local level. Right, um, in as increasingly the signs are right that the Supreme Court is not going to be um, a guarantor of rights, is not going to be an ally in this long process of freedom, um, and so the people I study are, um, I think, not quite in the haphazard way that Alan suggested, 
um, but in a very deliberate way, always experimenting um, with the possibilities at the federal level um, and at the same time in state and local venues. And well, I'm talking about members of Congress. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's to say my folks, I think, have a, um, a strategy, right, rather than a scattershot approach. And, um, and they are going to be um, looking to allies in state and local courts, for example, um, they are going to be looking back to the texts of what are new state constitutions. Um, they're going to be looking at that level um, for the possibility of, in a sense, um, actualizing what it is, the best promise of the 14th Amendment. Kurt, Kurt um, how big a deal was the slaughterhouse cases? Why did it come out the way it did? Was it, did it reflect the changing politics of the time, or was it a legitimate legal disagreement? And then tell us about how the due process clause of the 14th Amendment did come to take up some of the slack uh, that the slaughterhouse cases uh, created. The, the slaughterhouse cases, I teach constitutional law uh, at the University of Richmond School of Law, and the slaughterhouse case takes up a, a major portion of, of that course because it represents in many people's mind a lost opportunity uh, for the court to enforce the 14th Amendment against the states and protect a body of rights that men like John Bingham had hoped would going, uh, were going to be um, now made applicable against the states. And my students are often surprised um, by, the very, by the very issue because many of them come to my classes not knowing that the original Bill of Rights only bound the federal government. It was uh, you know, passed by uh, uh, the original Congress, uh, drafted by the original Congress and ratified very quickly after the original Constitution, and it only required the federal government not to establish religion. It only um, applied Fifth Amendment due process rights against uh, the federal government. States remained free to determine for themselves how they were going to approach criminal procedure or how they were going to protect freedom of speech or whether or not they were going to have slaves. And it was during the period between the founding and the time of the Civil War that this idea that certain critical subjects involving human freedom should be left to the states came under severe questioning. Um, the evil of slavery became uh, wrapped up more and more in, um, in politics and drove discussions in politics that uh, slavery was something, at least in the people of the North, could not accept, particularly because it seemed to be against this fundamental idea of due process in the Fifth Amendment that um, no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And whatever the culture at the time thought about blacks as citizens, they certainly couldn't deny that blacks were persons. And so the abolitionists began to create um, this rhetoric of freedom based upon one of the provisions in the Bill of Rights. And it drove an idea that that bill should not only represent something binding upon the federal government, it's something that all of us should be protected uh, from whether it was a state official who was depriving us life, liberty, or property, or a federal official. So it, there was a growing idea that these rights should be nationalized, should be being made applicable against the states, and certainly John Bingham had hoped that that would be an accomplishment through his um, demand in Section 1 that no state shall make or enforce any law abridging uh, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Um, nor shall any person be deprived of life, life, liberty, or property. But in Slaughterhouse, the court took an interpretation. It's a few years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And the court views the main provisions of Section 1 um, uh, in ways that scholars have criticized as unduly narrow, 
is not including certain economic rights, certain, uh, certain labor rights. And when he came to describing privileges or immunities, it was almost as if, almost as if he was saying that nothing had changed by the adoption of the 14th Amendment. He didn't spell it out in that case. It was Cruikshank, a few years down the road, that just came right, right out and said, those Bill of Rights that you might have thought would be applied against the states are not privileges that will bind state action. Um, and so the Privilege and Immunities Clause, very shortly after its ratification, um, disappeared from the stage in terms of being one of our protected rights. The semi-happy ending comes in the late 1800s and into um, the turn of the 20th century, when the Supreme Court begins to develop its idea of what counts as due process. The idea that certain liberties should not be denied no matter what kind of process has actually been provided. And the court begins to develop a collection of due process rights, it's sometimes called substantive rights, whereby no matter what kind of process is provided, you still should not have your property taken without just compensation. And you should still be protected in your freedom of speech against state officials shutting down your assembly or shutting down your expression. And one by one, they begin to treat due process liberties as if they have incorporated rights originally listed in the Bill of Rights. And that, in fact, is the court's approach to this day. Uh, John Bingham's original vision of applying Bill of Rights against the states is currently substantially the law. It just occurred by way of the Due Process Clause and not by way of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Wonderful. So just to review, everyone, this is very wonky, but really important. John Bingham had hoped to ensure that no state could abridge the rights of the Bill of Rights, and he said that in the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but the Supreme Court interpreted that clause in a way that reduced it to a nullity, and as a result, the Supreme Court starting at the turn of the century, but not really culminating until the 1960s and 70s. It took almost 100 years to make Bingham's vision a reality use the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to say there are certain basic liberties that can't be abridged by states as well as the federal government. Darrell, let's return from this very technical law to the historical context. Why did the court uh, uh, eviscerate the clause uh, after the high watermark of Reconstruction? What, you know, what happened in 1876 to end the commitment to Reconstruction and, and, and describe what was happening on the ground in the 18. 70s and 80s to reduce the promise of reconstruction to uh, uh, a nullity. Uh, so let me start and I'll show, I'll, I'll come full circle on it because I, I disagree, I think, a little bit with what Alan said um, uh, about there being no model. There was a model uh, for what to do, but it's one that nobody wanted to really touch, which is the law of conquest. That is, from antiquity uh, onward, the uh, penalty for losing a war of rebellion uh, was that all the leadership uh, were executed uh, or enslaved. In fact, um, the fact that um, uh, many Africans uh, had been caught in warfare was justified, uh, their slavery was justified as the law of conquest. And so there was a model, uh, but it was just so, um, uh, it was such a strong medicine uh, and created such a, a, an intellectual problem with the nature of the Civil War. What were the states in rebellion? Were they no longer states? Were they still states, but sort of misbehaving states? Uh, that uh, as, a, as, as a matter of, uh, of practice, uh, it was not, not triggered. So there was a model, but it wasn't one that the, uh, the Reconstruction Congress felt very comfortable in using to its full extent. Now, 
how does that lead to uh, what happens and the waning of, of Reconstruction? Well, um, in my civil rights litigation course, which I, which I teach, I, I often give my students uh, this sort of set of particulars on the ground. You have millions of freedmen, um, they don't have a lot of education, you have um, a, a hostile uh, southern um, uh, populace that uh, resent the fact that there are many freedmen in their midst, uh, and you also have eventually a kind of waning attention uh, on the part of uh, northern uh, advocates. Uh, and so I think it's fair to say that um, Part of the um, sort of the the reason why, for example, the privileges or immunities clause is sort of sapped of its its power. Part of it is legal, but part of it is an eventual sort of um, weariness with what to do about Reconstruction. How to when are things going to be back to normal? When are we all going to be just states again? Um, when are we not going to have to worry about the freedmen anymore? Uh, and so I think, you know, from the 30,000 foot view, the reason why the cases uh, end up eventually sapping um, um, the uh, 14th Amendment, at least in some uh, respects of, of its, its power, is, is sort of following the, the election results, as they say, uh, with respect to um, interest in, in the Reconstruction Project as a whole. Let's take one round on the word that is the center of our symposium today, but we haven't focused on yet in this panel, and that is equal protection, equality. Uh, and then we have some great questions from the audience. Alan, the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deprive any person of the equal protection of the law. The core meaning of protection was that white mobs can't set on African Americans and the police refuse to respond and they're denied physical perfection, uh, protection. And yet, that mob violence was tolerated. Congress uh, forbade uh, discrimination in quasi-public accommodations in the Civil Rights Act of 1875, but the Supreme Court struck that down in the civil rights cases. So give us a brief history of the rise and fall of constitutional equality, and why was the framers' hopes on that scores thwarted as well? Equal protection will rise and fall almost in direct parallel with the rise and fall of privileges or immunities. Because equal protection, first of all, is gonna get qualified by who is protecting whom. Does the federal government have an obligation? Does it have an opportunity to intervene in providing equal protection? Well, under what circumstances? One of the most dramatic circumstances um, involves a major race riot which takes place in Colfax, Louisiana in 1873. And it was a case where a white mob set upon uh, black electors at a courthouse and massacred them. I mean, there's no better word to use. No, you, you can't gentrify it in any other way. It was a massacre. When this finally comes up to the United States Supreme Court, it's the case we sometimes know simply as Crookshank versus U.S., Crookshank having been one of the members of the mob, um, the United States Supreme Court backs off from this because, and, and its answer is twofold. One is, it says, first of all, the Constitution and the intention of the 14th Amendment is only to restrain the states. Now, that was actually a, a step in the right direction when that was originally conceived. However, in Crookshank, the judgment that is made is that, well, this was a white mob 
it wasn't the state of Louisiana. Since it wasn't the state of Louisiana organizing the white mob, therefore, there's no obligation on the part of the federal government to step in and provide anything that could be called equal protection. It sounds to us like they were in 1875 when this decision is finally handed down. It sounds like they're, they're really parsing this in a very narrow, narrow, focused way. And in fact, they were. But they were also doing this according to this notion of what level of obligation brings in the federal government. Well, if it was the state which had done this, all right, fine. But it wasn't the state. No one can show us that the state actually set this situation up. This was the spontaneous act of, of a white mob. Therefore, the federal government doesn't really have any role to play uh, in dealing with this. In a way, you back off from that and you say, wait a minute, this was a mob action, there was a massacre. Somebody's got to do something about something here. But the response of the Supreme Court was, yes, but not us. Not us. It's not our obligation. And not even the 14th Amendment with equal protection obligates us, because the only thing we provide equal protection for is against actions done by the states and state governments themselves. So if the state of Louisiana had gotten up this massacre, oh, yes, uh, then perhaps in theory the Supreme Court would have gone into full mode. Uh, but they can back off on this and say, well, you know, it's really not our problem because it wasn't organized by the state. And that becomes the basis for the Cruikshank decision and actually becomes the basis really for uh, emptying the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of, of a lot of its effective application. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible decision in a horrible case. And it brings forth all the head-shaking uh, that we ought to have over good logical reasoning from bad premises to bad conclusions. You know, if you start off with bad premises, you can have all the wonderful legal logic in the world, but it'll still give you bad results. That still doesn't mean it was, re was respectable. We've spent a long time since Crookshank trying to claw back from that. Martha, I'm going to ask you what you make of Cruikshank, the civil rights cases, and the evisceration of the promise of the 14th Amendment by the Supreme Court. Why, why did the court parse the amendments as it did? Were they bad originalists or motivated by a, an animus to reconstruction? And then I'm going to put on the table this excellent question from the audience as well. What did the 14th Amendment mean for those African Americans who came here before it was ratified but owned land and other property? What happened to their property? What rights did they have? Maybe I'll try that in reverse order. Yeah. Two, two big questions, but thank <laughs> um, you. And say that um, the second question really picks up on the long story of the 14th Amendment, which is that um, free black Americans have indeed been engaged in protecting, attempting to protect their property and their persons um, by way of local courts for a very long time before we get to the 14th Amendment. So there is a an awareness not only on the local level in the lives of black Americans who are building families, homes, communities, churches, all of that requires um, many things, but it requires law, right, to do and to do well and to sustain. So we have that level. And at the same time, we've had over the course of 30 years, um, state high courts, which have really vacillated around the degree to which they are going to protect those civil rights um, for African Americans. So it's a tremendous moment. It's a 
tremendous moment of possibility, right, when the 14th Amendment is now going to constitutionalize, right, and, and has the possibility, the promise of um, now overseeing state legislatures, state courts, um, and guaranteeing these kinds of rights that African Americans have piecemeal, but in an important way, been securing for themselves over time. Um, I have to take us all the way, if I could, to Plessy versus Ferguson, because I don't think we can talk about equality without talking about Plessy and appreciating for um, m most of you will remember that Plessy is the case that um, leaves us with um, a dark legacy of the notion of separate but equal, um, examining the um, organization and the regulation of streetcars um, in the state of Louisiana, in the city of New Orleans. This is a challenge that is brought by a next generation of African-American legal activists, now with a new set of tools and a new kind of access, a new kind of organization, still thinking hard about the Constitution and its promise. And the logic in Plessy, right, which says, indeed, yes, black and white patrons on streetcars must sit in separate sections. Nothing unequal about that, right? Because everyone gets to ride, and black and white patrons are treated in the same way because they're separated. Well, for me, that lay, that um, strained logic, right, tells us a lot about where we are with the court by the time we get to the end of the 19th century. Um, that um, there's no secret. Right? There's no um, deep probing required to appreciate, as Homer Plessy argues, right, that the um, separate requirement is intended to denigrate, to mark African Americans as different, as inferior, as somehow not citizens equal to their white counterparts. Um, this is not a secret logic or a mystery for a Supreme Court that nonetheless is prepared to twist that notion of equal and leave us with a legacy that we continue to grapple with, I think, until today. Thank you for putting Plessy on the table and describing it so powerfully. Uh, we're gonna have uh, some thoughts from Kurt and then uh, Daryl and, and then wrap up. So Kurt, um, during his confirmation hearings, Justice Neil Gorsuch said that Plessy was wrong the day that it was decided as a matter of original understanding. Was it wrong the day that it was decided and what do you make of the court's evisceration of the promise of reconstruction? Plessy and Cruikshank and these series of decisions that come down by the court that left blacks defenseless um, against private violence, not just, not just against state violence, but against private violence, is the story of the, the great tragedy of failure, both, both political failure, both majoritarian failure, but also judicial failure, um, uh, to invoke and enforce the protections of the 14th Amendment. And that's why so many of the discussions of the history of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are, are, are stories of tragedy. Of, of stories of, of failure. But before getting there, before getting there, notice what we're talking about. We're talking about a failure to enforce something. What is it that they failed to enforce? Well, there was, there's an amendment back there that somehow got passed, somehow got added to our Constitution, which declared principles that then were gonna stand in judgment against later generations, including later generations of courts. And before we too quickly get to the, the story of tragedy, and there is a, a story of tragedy, I think there's also a story to celebrate 
regarding why these principles were added to the Constitution in the first place, and this also goes to your initial question of how did we get it and the meaning of the, of the Equal Protection Clause, we almost didn't get it. It was the, once Congress drafted this complicated five-sectioned proposed amendment to the Constitution, nothing like it had ever been on the table before, um, uh, the country erupted into political controversy um, over whether or not this was an appropriate restructuring of the American Constitution. And it was a reversal of the idea that you could best trust local politicians to take care of you. Um, that's why the original Bill of Rights only bound the federal government. It was federalism. We trust people who we know, right? Well, after the experience with slavery and the experience with the suppression of, of rights of both whites and blacks in the South, we adopt these amendments, or at least we put on the table this idea that maybe some of these rights aren't being protected by state officials. But it wasn't clear that the nation was going to buy it. In the months between oh, June, when it's first sent to the states for ratification, um, for the first six or seven months, the Democrats raise a powerful argument that this is an unreasonable expansion of national power, that this is going to create a tyrannical Congress who's going to try and take over all of local laws. They're going to be unaccountable. It'll be worse than King George III. Um, but midway through the summer, something happens which actually turns the country, particularly the North, in the direction of the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. And it takes us back to Louisiana again. A group of freedmen had gathered in New Orleans to discuss amending the state constitution to give them the right to vote. That assembly was targeted by local mobs, local mobs under the direction of the mayor of New Orleans. They attacked the assembly, um, started shooting the members of the assembly, and when they tried to surrender, they shot them dead anyway. It became a national scandal. There was probably no more reported event that occurred from summer to the end of 1866 than the riots of New Orleans. What happened at this point is that the Democrats who were fighting against the 14th Amendment, including Andrew Johnson, the President of the United States, they had argued we didn't need a 14th Amendment. You could trust state officials with your privileges or your immunities. You could trust them to equally protect all persons in their lives and their property. The Republicans simply pointed to New Orleans. And what had been an even, um, an even bet as to whether or not Republicans were going to be elected in 1866, instead the country in a landslide re-elected Republicans and defeated Democrats, voting in what actually became a referendum on the 14th Amendment that in fact we could no longer trust state officials with our most important rights, our most important privileges and immunities, and the idea that we would be equally protected in our lives and property. That was the vision that the country decided to make a part of their constitution in 1866, and the Republicans got it done. It then becomes a judgment onto later generations as to whether or not we lived up um, to that initial vision. But there was a point when the country knew it, and the country embraced it, and made it a rock that maybe it took too long to get to, but eventually courts did. And it was that rock of equal protection that the most important decisions of the Supreme Court of the 20th century are based. Thank you for that. Uh, Daryl, the last word is to you, and the question from the audience is about the role of African Americans in Reconstruction. How does W.E.B. Du Bois's scholarship in Black Reconstruction stand up today? How much do we owe to his research? And tell us about other African American unsung heroes of Reconstruction who helped make the Reconstruction Amendments a reality. Great question. So I think it's fair to say that um, 
What happens in the Reconstruction period and afterward is that there is a revision of history. It's sometimes called the Dunning School uh, of Scholarship about the South, in which uh, Reconstruction is portrayed as um, a wildly misguided mistake, that it was uh, all kinds of unqualified uh, individuals uh, ruling the uh, the states and the and going to Congress, it was uh, all kinds of graft and corruption, um, and that's all that can be said of uh, Reconstruction. Uh, and in fact, um, it was a redemption. They were called redeemers. Uh, were the Southerners who uh, ended up taking over in the South uh, and redeeming it from the sort of corrupt. Uh, co uh, corrupt uh, period of, of time. Uh, and what um, Du Bois did was uh, question that Dunning school of, of, of thought, uh, said, no, uh, this is an, an effort to uh, portray a constitutive point in our past as something that is less, something that is a mistake, uh, and uh, we shouldn't accept it. Uh, it's taken generations for the Dunning School of, of, of Scholarship uh, about Reconstruction to, to finally be laid to rest, and, uh, and occasionally uh, you'll see uh, versions of it pop up. Um, but uh, in sort of trying to lay that school of, of scholarship about Reconstruction uh, to bed, um, the, the, the participation of African Americans in their own um, uh, power centers in their own making uh, constitutive of the the, the nation uh, has has really been um, uh, an important part of that story. Uh, whether you're talking about some of the first lawyers, African American lawyers to ever uh, uh, attain the bar, uh, or you're talking about um, you know uh, individuals uh, who uh, uh, risk their lives. Uh, to run for office and become uh, the first African-American office holders. And uh, recapturing that story has been important. And I think it's also important to realize, and this is one thing that I want to sort of leave you with, that there's a through line. It's a through line not only from the 14th Amendment, but 100 years forward into the uh, what is sometimes known as the Second Reconstruction, which is the Civil Rights Era, the same type of arguments that African Americans are citizens, that they deserve protection, they deserve respect, uh, is the same kind of arguments that are made 100 years before and are made on the steps of um, uh, uh, Washington uh, and on the Edmund Pettus Bridge 100 years later. Uh, this has been a superb introduction to our important day of discussion. Uh, to keep on schedule, I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats, and Sherilyn will come out in a moment to begin our next panel. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panelists. Today's show is engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Special thanks to the NAACP for partnering with the NCC on this event. July 9th, 2018 also marked another historic event. President Trump nominated D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Next week, We the People will host Elizabeth Slattery of the Heritage Foundation and Brianne Garrod of the Constitutional Accountability Center 
to discuss President Trump's two Supreme Court picks, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Judge Kavanaugh, and how both might change the future of the Supreme Court and constitutional law. The Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.